Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Happy Father's Day again. Hey, just a quick note on Father's Day. Um, there's a book called uh, Fathered by God by John Eldridge, if that name sounds familiar to you. He's the author of Wild at Heart. I highly recommend this book. Um, if you had a great dad, or if you didn't have a dad, or if your dad has went home to be with the Lord, it's a good book is what I'm trying to say. Uh, it, outside of the Bible, uh, as it relates to being, fa- being fatherless like me, uh, this single-handedly was the best book that I read. So I recommend it, even if you had a wonderful dad, um, and really the whole thing is learning what your dad could never teach you. And uh, it's just the grace of God. So I recommend it. Um, you can order it online. If you don't like to read, if that's your excuse, it's on Audible. If you still don't have a subscription to Audible, then you can go get a free library card, and then you can download the app called Hoopla, and you can get it for free, and then you can press play. So there's no excuse. Uh, If there's enough people who read it and show interest in it, uh, we can do a study on it. Uh, it, It's really helpful. It just walks you through. So I just want to encourage you. And if you're a wonderful father this morning, God bless you. This will, will also encourage you. So with that, um, we're going to continue on in our series of Ezra and Nehemiah. We are now in Nehemiah. So if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, turn to Nehemiah 1. We're going to read all of it, all 11 verses of it. Nehemiah 1, starting at verse 1. And it reads, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Halakha. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Arxis' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well. For those who return to the province of Judah, they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying Night and day for the people of Israel, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you have gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to my prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Brief prayer, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity to come and to worship you through song and music and fellowship and now through your word. Prepare our hearts to receive what you have. Thank you, as we've sung this morning, for being the good, good father, regardless of our earthly father. Thank you for 
loving us so well that you sent your son to die on our, for our sins on our behalf, Lord. So Lord, as we go through your word, as we continue on in this series, just pray that you speak to us through your spirit, illuminate the scripture to us. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So everyone is called, everyone is called to a handful of big events, big life-changing situations. There are, of course, several things, situation God calls you to do in response, but there are moments when you're driving around and you feel that sense that God is speaking to you, perhaps, maybe it's so overwhelming that you try to ignore. Maybe you're driving by someone that you see walking to church this morning or to work and then that sense to turn around or you know you should call someone and you just feel a sense that God's calling you to call them or text them or reach out to them or perhaps if you're at school you walk by a, a table and there's only one kid there, the new kid. And... Uh, you feel that calling to go and turn around and some of us are better than others at immediately responding, but I think all of us at some point, regardless, try to make excuses why you're not called to do that. And to be clear, when I use the word called, I mean Christ speaking to you. Or as we've been reading for the last couple of months or month or so, God stirring in your heart. As you remember, if you remember in Ezra 1, God stirred the heart of the King Cyrus, stirred the heart of the people. He stirs our heart. But do you really know what at the heart of calling really is? It's an invitation to God's story of redemption. That's what a calling is. I believe first he calls all of us to himself. That's the first calling. He pursues us. Christ first loved us so that in return we can love him. He calls each and every one of us to be saved, a saving relationship to him. He calls us out of the muck and mire of our sin. He calls us to salvation, to confess that Jesus is Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. That is the first calling, and that's a very important calling. And we'll touch on that a, a little bit. But also, I believe there's more callings throughout our life. I would say next, the next calling after he saves you, and this can happen right at the same time God saves you, salvation. Sometimes if you're thick-headed, it takes you a couple of years like me, but I believe he calls you to be holy or to surrender your life to him. For some people, you're saved by God's grace and immediately all of you, you're, I'm all in God. For some of us, we say, thank you for the free pass from hell. I'll talk to you later. It's that response, this calling to be holy as he is holy, surrendering our life. God, you know best. And don't, don't hear me wrong. I don't think that there's a moment where we're saying, all right, God, you are fully in control. I am completely great. I think it's a process. I think... Every moment, sometimes second by second, we have to say, all right, my life is yours. My life is yours. The kids get up for the 28th time when it's bedtime. My life is yours. 
Their life is gonna be yours in a minute, God, if you don't send them to bed. But moment by moment, you know how well bedtime went. But moment by moment, God is calling us. He's drawing us near to him. It's the work that he's doing. It's his spirit calling us to save us and then to be more like him. Then I believe after all of that, and I don't think there's a perfect timeline. We're all different, but I I believe also that there's other callings that God puts on our lives. Calling to serve, calling to be part of his redemption story called the service, his redemption plan, to be a soldier of his or marching orders, whatever you want to call it. Essentially, what do you do with your life? I think after salvation and surrendering your life to the Lord, the second biggest decision is if you are to marry or not, and if you are to marry, who you marry. And second is having children, and then your career, what you do for a living. But I also think even within that, God is calling us to serve him. There's this calling in how God wants us to be involved in kingdom work. And the question then perhaps you may be asking now, or at least have asked in your life, great, I believe you, I believe in a calling, I know that, I've heard that, I've heard lots of pastors, I've podcasted all out, but the question is, how do I know that God's really calling me to that? How do I know that God is calling me and it's not a knee-jerk reaction. How do I know that God is calling me and it's not an impulse or just emotional response or just I have an upset stomach? How do I know that, that God is calling me? How do I work through a calling? And what happens if I sense God's calling me to do something, then what's my next step? And then what happens, where's my next step and my next step and the next step? And then what happens when this happens or that happens? So how do you know? How do you know when God's calling you to do something? And the answer in short is prayer. And that's what Nehemiah has laid out for us. That, that's the whole response. If you recall at the beginning of this series, I mentioned that Nehemiah especially is one that Christians use at conferences for leadership, how to be a good leader, how to be a successful leader, how to be fill in the blank, how to be a good father, a good mother, a good CEO, a good fill in the blank. But really it's a story of redemption and the story of calling because if you're a leader, everyone's a leader. A leader is defined if you have influence. The more influence you have, the more of a leader that you are, but yet, regardless of what kind of leader you are, it's a calling. You're called to do that. You're called to lead. For some, you're just thrown in the deep end. Get to work. Good luck. Maybe you didn't even get thrown in. Maybe you just walked in one day and poof, there you are. But how does prayer work when working through a calling? And if, again, if you remember as we've been walking through Nehemiah and Ezra, now we are about 90-ish years, just short of 90 years, 88 years, um, from the first time that the Jewish people were allowed to return after 70 years of exile. 88 years has gone. The second wave of people have already come. First, 10%. Next was another 8% of the whole population. And now, here we are. We're reading Nehemiah. And, and we're seeing that this problem is presented to him. 
simply out of a conversation because his brother came home. Commentaries argue, smart people argue if it's really a blood brother or if it's someone related to him, regardless, his brother came and he was excited to hear what's going on because Nehemiah is probably around 40, 45 at this time, this estimation. And he has never been to Jerusalem. He's, he's been born in Persia, in, in, somewhere in the capital. Uh, he's at Susa. He's a cupbearer. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he just wants to hear how it's going, and then he hears that it's pretty poor. That's not what you want to hear. And really, to give us a little more of a background, um, at the very end, if, if you just look at verse 11, the last thing he says is, or the last two things he says is, put it into his heart, talking about the king, to be kind to me, dot, 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 in those days I was the king's cupbearer. So the reader, these are the memoirs of, of Nehemiah, somewhere in the middle, someone else is going to fill in some blanks and then it'll come back to first person. But really, it, first century Jewish people reading this, when they read at the bottom, in those days I was the cupbearer, king's cupbearer, they would have all said, oh, we see the problem. This is going to be tough. In other words, my heart is broken, but I'm essentially third in command of this pagan nation. Oh. I'm called to the pastorate, but I'm already an engineer and have a kid. Oh. And, and as we heard from the Salmons a couple of weeks ago, we have a heart to do missions. Oh, you're not going to Kenya. You're going to South Sudan. Oh, oh. Well, never mind then. Oh. So that's essentially at the very bottom when he says, basically it should say, oh, by the way, this isn't going to be easy. But the callings are not. But God is. So why was this such a big deal? Whenever he asked to be, for the king Artaxerxes to be kind to him because it says in the 20th year of his reign, going back to the very top, it says in late autumn in the month of Kislev, that means sometime in about December, we'll talk about it next week, but there's several calendars that are going on. There's the Persian calendar, the Babylonian calendar, the Babylonian calendar is actually what we use today, but who cares? Then there's the Jewish calendar and all these calendars and essentially sometime in December, in late autumn, not in the middle of winter, go figure, 20 years after the, this reign of Xerxes, And the big reason why he's asking God to allow Xerxes to be kind is because they just got done fighting a five-year battle with the Egyptians. Persia has now been in control for these 88 years, and it's, there's some uprising in Egypt and make things even worse, one of the governors or satraps in Persia and to the Egyptians, his name is Megabus. You'll never forget that name. Sounds like a transformer. Megabus decides to take all of the transformers. I'm just kidding. He decides to take all of the Egyptians and revolts. And to make matters worse, it's Xerxes' uncle. But don't worry, they worked it out until his uncle tried to do it again with another group of people. But Megabus has just been defeated. He came in front of uh, the king Xerxes. We know this from the Persian notes. 
as they call it, those little corn on the cob looking scrolls that tells this whole story. They just got done fighting this battle. And then all of a sudden, Nehemiah has a sense, a calling, that God wants him to do something about these walls. And oh, by the way, he's a cupbearer. And a cupbearer is just what you think it is. His entire responsibility was to take care of the king. He tasted all of his drinks, all of his food. He also slept in the chamber right outside of the king's quarters. So that way, if an assassin came to come in, hopefully Nehemiah could at least scream and let him know. He was a cupbearer. And that sounds awful, because who here, I hope this isn't poison. But it was such a prestigious position. And not only that, he is Jewish. And not only that, he is a Jewish man who's never been to Jerusalem. He lives in a Persian culture. The rest of Nehemiah, I'll point out when it comes out in Nehemiah 2, 3, 6. He'll use Persian words because he's both. He has a really good job. And he's been a cupbearer for some time. So he hasn't died yet. But he has this sense, this calling, this, this oh, what do I do now? And what's so wonderful about God when he calls us is, and if you'll notice, he's already put gifts and abilities in the heart of people well before we even know that he's going to use them. The little boy and the little girl that is really good at taking apart their toys and putting them back together. I think all kids are good at taking them apart but putting them back together. You'll notice that eventually God uses them not just to be a mechanic or a technician, but to go into the mission field. I had a friend that, uh, when we went to school together uh, as an engineer, he was invited to go to Saudi Arabia to work on cars, but he just turned it into a mission. And he's still there, as far as I know, we don't get much communication from him to this day. But he was the little boy that was taking things apart. Already, God had already placed gifts and abilities in the heart. God has already placed gifts and abilities in, in Nehemiah's heart. He's like, yeah, it's great. You can, anyone can drink from a cup and take for food. But this also meant that he was overseer of people because there was other noble men and, who had other cupbearers. He was already great at delegating and, already, and we'll see that. He was already great at all these things and he just thought, he just thought it was for this job. But the calling, God has already prepared our, our hearts. He either makes us hyper aware of situations, super sensitive in different seasons. God has put that in our hearts. And he does that because he desires us to grow with him, to bring him glory, and to be a part of his redemption story. And Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. And we'll see that his name, comforts, will be a theme throughout. So as we consider this, let's look at how he prayed through this calling. Because at first it's just a response that turns into a calling. But let's work our way through this. When he hears the news, in verse 3, let's see that again. It says, they said to me, his brother and his friends, they are not doing well. For those who return to the province of Judah, they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So we don't know necessarily if this is when the initial uh, temple was destroyed or a second wave. And the reason why this is such a big deal is because 
no one would live in Jerusalem without any walls of protection. Now imagine your home. Let's just take off all of your front and back doors and you go to bed at night. Not gonna happen. And that's what it is. But not only that, is, and we'll see, is that this is because of sin. The whole reason why there's a return is because there was sin. The redemption story. So how does he respond? In verse four it says, when I heard this, Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned. I fasted. I prayed to God of heaven. He was heartbroken over it. But the interesting thing is, is his brothers didn't seem to be heartbroken over it. I'm sure they were sad about it. But why so sensitive? Why, why so heartbroken? You've never been there. Again, I really believe it's God's already put it in his heart to be sensitive to these things. So he wept. And then in verse five, it says how he prayed. So in verse five and halfway through six, he recognizes who God is. He starts with who God is. So as you're working through your calling, if you feel like God is calling you to do something or changing your calling or shifting you to something else, begin by recognizing who it is who calls you, Christ. And not only recognize that, but recognize the power and the strength in who he is. And that's what he does. He says, oh Lord, God of heaven, the proper name for God. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love and obey his commands. He not only recognizes who God is, he makes it personal. He also recognizes that the situation that they're in is not because God has forgotten about them. It's because God has fallen short of what he promised He says, the God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, who obey his commands. So as you're working through a calling in your life, you feel like, maybe God wants me to do this. And this is not necessarily God is calling you to go to the middle of Antarctica or to South Sudan. This could simply mean go across the street and talk to your neighbor about Christ. Volunteer in the preschool room. Volunteer at youth group. Volunteer at Youth for Christ. I mean, you get the point. I can list off more if you need it. So to to recognize that it is God who's calling, that part of the covenant that he's calling you to is because he cares for you. And you have to start with recognizing who God is and obeying his commands. So many times I have seen people try to shortcut this, especially for pastors. So many times people say, man, you have the easiest job in the world. All you do is work on Sunday. I'll let you tell me. I don't even work on Sunday. I just run my mouth. But people who feel like they're called to the ministry sometimes can shortcut obeying his commands. I'll do it later. I'll, get, I'll, I'll grow closer to God later. It's just like those whenever I do premarital counseling. Do you guys do any kind of scripture reading or devotions together? No, but when we get married, we will. No, you won't. You could. I hope you do. Start now. Because then when kids come along, do you do devotions with your kids? No, when they're able to read. 
Oh, great, so you're going to wait for them to read to you. Later, later, later. But already you could see, God, I know that your covenant is unfailing love with those who love you and obey your command. And then he says in verse six, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me pray night and day for your people of Israel. Then he starts that transition. He starts that transition by saying, I'm not only praying for me, but I'm praying for other people. I'm not only praying for me, my calling, but whatever that involves with other people. I'm asking you to be a part of it. I'm also asking, if we're talking about calling that, whoever else is struggling with a calling, will you work in their life too? Hear hear my prayer, God. It's the same way that David had prayed. Turn your ear to me, Lord. Bend your ear to me. Reach down to me. You've ever felt like you've prayed to God, but you were just in an empty room and he wasn't there? Asking him, come. Come down. And the second part, working through your covenant, is working through the sin. Well, surely not. Excuse me. Working through a calling within the covenant of God, then confess your sin. Surely a calling doesn't have to do with sin. It does. The whole reason why God came down to save us is because of sin. The whole reason why we're called to ministry is because the world is lost. Once we get to heaven, there's no need for ministry. There's no need to respond except just worship God. So he says, I confess, halfway through six, I confess that we have sinned. He's brought himself into it against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. The whole reason why these walls are torn down in the first place is because we started to worship other gods and we were in the wilderness for 70 years. Notice that Nehemiah said, hey, I wasn't even born then. That's on them. I'm only like 43 and a half years old. I've only been in Persia. This isn't my problem. But he's identifying it as his problem. Because it is. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So as you're working through your, your calling, recognize where you fall short. But don't let that be a detraction from serving the Lord. Because if we're all honest in here, no one is worthy to serve God. But it's only because of Christ. So he confesses his sin, his family sin, his sin, the whole nation's sin. Verse seven goes on, we have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant, Moses. How does he know that unless he's already been in scripture? I had a pastor who who brought lots of people into ministry and has sent them out. He did a great job of... uh, just building up pastors and just turning them over. It was, it was basically a school of ministry at his church. And one of the things that he mentioned, and I just talked to him a couple of weeks ago, is he always, and I remember this, he always asked people to write out their calling. Write it out. Even if you're not a writer, write it out. And then go through scripture and see how that applies. See what kind of calling there is. And he says he does this is because he said there will be many times while you're in the middle of your calling, you'll look back and say, nope, I missed it. But remember that excitement that you had in your calling. Part of that is working through knowing the commands and the decrees and regulations. 
that gave you through your servant Moses. And in verse eight, he goes on and he says, please remember what you told your servant Moses. Please remember your covenant. I'm not reminding you, God, because you may have forgot. I'm reminding you, so I believe it. And although Nehemiah was in a very high position, he still was concerned for what was going on in Jerusalem. It would have been easy for him and his position, his nobility, his importance, uh, to hinder his career, the latter success, moving up into business. He cares. And a side note to a calling. Don't look at a calling to serve God as a way to get yourself out of a bad situation. Man, my job is awful. Let's pack up and move to and be missionaries. I mean, when Troy comes, he shared two weeks ago when he shared about his shoes lost, and you're like, what an adventure. But that's hard. You, always, you notice that you can, it's real easy for you to look at somebody else's life and think, man, they got it easy. If only God had called me to be that. So calling is not to run away from a bad situation. What you'll find if you do do that, if you change, even if it's going, serving in one ministry to another, you'll carry whatever the burden is to that one. It's just like, a husband and wife who are not getting along for some time and they decide, hey, let's go on a vacation. That'll make things right. One or two things happen. One, you fight at the airport. You fight at your vacation. You fight on the way home and it's a great vacation and then you need a vacation from your vacation. Or everything is great and then you come home and nothing's changed. You can't run away through a calling. God doesn't work that way. And as you consider what God is calling you to do, it's really a response to what God has already done in your heart, what he's doing, what he's naturally gifted you, as I mentioned. Again, he talks about this sin for the reason to be redeemed. God, remember, please, verse 8, please remember that you told your servant Moses, if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. Check, God did that. But... But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, which Persia was, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. So hear that prayer, God, there's a lost world and we've sinned and we're not worthy, but you are worthy, but use me, use me because I know your commands and your degrees, decrees. Please remember, and I will honor you back, for you have chosen for my name to be honored. But why a temple? The question may be, why a temple? Why is it so important for Jerusalem? Because that's where God chose to begin his redemption story, to bring about Christ. This temple that's rebuilt, just a reminder, in a few years, well, in about 200 years, the temple will still be around. And in 250 years, Jesus will be born. And he will be dedicated at this temple. And later on in his adult life, he will, this will be the temple that he flips. 
the table. This will be the temple that he says, tear down this temple. They think it's, he's talking about that, but he's talking about him. And in verse 10, after he's repented, after he's, he reminds himself that God is faithful, he says, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. I just want to join what you're already doing. In verse 11, O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I had a very high position. God is calling me away from something. And if you go throughout scripture, what you'll notice is that when God calls people from one thing to another, he never asks them to abandon their responsibilities. I think the best example of that for me is King David. You remember the story? Whenever he hears about Goliath, and he runs out to go to fight him. If you recall, if you look back, 2 Samuel, you'll see that he says he found someone to watch his sheep, his father's sheep. He didn't say, oh, God's calling me. Forget you, sheep. Good luck. He found someone to take care of what needed to be done. He didn't run away from his responsibility. And then he went and fought Goliath. Which as, as you can, are considering this, just to be clear, when God calls you to do something, he doesn't ask you to break a covenant or to move away from something of a responsibility. He may completely take you out of your position wherever you're at and send you far away. He may just send you down the street. But if you're a father or a mother, you're still a father and a mother. If you're a husband and a wife, you're still a husband and a wife. You still have those covenantal responsibilities and through this prayer that Nehemiah lays out, he's going to return to it because he's going to have some doubt along the way. As I mentioned, my friend who's a pastor who has those who feel like they're called into pastoral ministry, write it out. He will go back to this prayer. Hey God, these guys are attacking us. Are you sure? Because he hasn't even confirmed that he's going to rebuild the wall. What happens next, spoiler alert, he's going to present his request to the, the king. We'll talk about why that was favorable. But once he gets there, he'll go in the dead of night so no one knows. He's still working through his calling, making sure. But much as what God does today, as he, as he calls, he will remind, he will walk with us, he will confirm in us. He won't make it easy for us. He'll walk through us. A calling doesn't, again, take you away from a responsibility. It doesn't make you run away from one thing to another without clearing up or closing out loose ends. It's one chapter to another as we devote our lives to Christ and serving him. I like how Chuck Swindoll writes down, he has this four things that prayer does when you're working through a calling or a situation. This is, this is from Chuck Swindoll. He says, why pray? And he says, first, it makes us wait. When we have a sense of our calling, if the first thing we do is pray, it makes us wait. We can earnestly pray and at the same time, we can't earnestly pray and at the same time rush ahead of God with rash actions. 
Now, I know there's prayer bombs when you're driving in your truck or your car and you're like, oh, God. But that's not what he's talking to. God, this is, if you're praying like what Nehemiah laid out, you're not rushing into anything. Prayer forces us to take a breath, adjust our attitudes before the Lord, then act. No knee-jerk reaction. Second, the second thing that prayer does, prayer clears our vision. It says it enables us to see the situation through God's eyes and not our own. We have this inkling, we feel like we need to do something. Uh, we're unsure. Praying makes us wait. Praying also clears our vision. Is this what you want me to do, God, or does it need to be more narrowed into a specific area? Third, prayer quiets our hearts. We cannot continue to worry and pray at the same time. One will snuff out the other, depending on which one we choose. And fourth, prayer activates our faith. And with that faith comes an attitude of hope and peace that replaces the petty and critical attitude that is evident when we haven't spent time in prayer. And that's not, I think that's, that's good, not even if you're working through a calling, just in general. If you are finding that you have a petty attitude, a critical attitude, you have a short temper, pray. And then pray some more. But prayer really activates our faith. In closing, uh, Philip DeCourcy, a pastor in Southern California, I think he describes it best. I'll, I'll paraphrase and extend the analogy a little bit. Uh, especially for those in here who feel like they've had a calling, they've missed their calling. Maybe they're on their second wave of calling, third wave of calling. Maybe you're not even interested in that calling. Maybe it's because you don't trust God in that calling. Maybe it's just rough. Maybe you believe that he saved you, but would he even use you? Maybe if you're working through your calling and you're right where God wants, this is still for you. So God is involved in our lives. He doesn't merely walk us up to this huge snowy mountain and makes you carry your own sled. He doesn't run to the top and watch you come up. He doesn't stand there hitting his foot, tapping his watch until you get to the top. And then when you get to the top, God doesn't just simply put you on your sled, ask you if you're ready to go. When you're about to say no, he pushes you anyway. Then when that push comes and you're running down the mountain and you look back, he's not just standing there as you cream off trees on your way down and you fall over snow and then as you're trying to get back up and turn over your sled, he's not up there at the top of the mountain saying, you can do it. It's not what God does. It's not how he works. First of all, he's carried you and your sled up the mountain. In the muck and mire of your sin, he saved you. Then he sets you on your sled and buckles you in. Remind you to keep your helmet on. And he doesn't just simply push you down the mountain. He rides along with you. 
He rides along with you even whenever you look for a shortcut and you take a dangerous path. And when you fall off, he doesn't just say, get back up, he picks you up. He puts you on the sled. He reminds you of who you are and whose you are. He dusts you off, puts you back on, gives you another push, and he rides along with you. And even when there's that branch that's in the snow, only an inch and a half that you don't see, and you run it over, and you think you've totally missed it, he picks you up, he dusts you off, snaps your helmet on, says you can do it. All the while reminding you of who you are and whose you are. Inviting you into his redemption story. First for you. The redemption story first starts with Christ who saved you. Then the redemption story goes into who you invite. And as you are, we are navigating down this hill and again, even though we've hit that same branch 15 times or we've gone down the wrong path, he's there. God is not only, has not only called you to the mountain, he has carried you to the mountain. He's carried your sled. And once you get down to the bottom of the mountain, once we enter into glory, we will realize that he was our sled and our helmet. And this mountain that we thought was so big was no more than a hill. And he could be trusted, first to save you, then to call you, then to redeem you in that calling. So as you are considering what it is that God wants you to do in your life, remember to start with who God is, recognize who he is, praise his name, admit any sin, your sin, other people's sin, the fact that we're sinners. Repent of that sin, don't just be sorry, we talked about that last week. Don't simply be sorry, but repent. Then remind God of his covenant and his promises, not for him, but for you. And then present your request, God, is this where you want me to go? But it starts with who you are and whose you are. Let's pray. God, in heaven, we thank you. that you saved us, that you loved us, that the big, scary, snowy mountain that we call life, and you remind us that we're not alone. We didn't even get to the top on our own. We couldn't save ourselves. We, we are nothing without you. But yet you invite us in, to a saving relationship with you first, and then second, you invite us to be part of your redemption story, how great it is to be your hands and feet as you remind us. Lord, as we are working out our calling, even if it's the fifth change in our calling, regardless of our age, regardless if we're five in here or 105, you still have a calling in our lives to serve you. And Lord, even as callings may change and we have to give up one for another, we know that you are faithful. So Lord, let us work through our calling through prayer like Nehemiah, we're thankful for stories like this that is recorded for us, that we can see someone in a great position that you've already put in his heart, you've already wired him in such a way to recognize giftings, and then you use them for your glory. So we pray that for us. 
pray for anyone in here who's been struggling with a calling, feeling like you've called them to do something. Will you encourage them now? But most of all, thank you for your son. So as we worship you, we just thank you as you call us out to be faithful to you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.